0: Now open your Bibles again to John chapter 8, and when you've found your place, we will bow our heads ask God's blessing upon His Word. Our Father, it is our desire to honor You through the faithful proclamation of Your Word, through reading it and obeying it. We ask, O Spirit of God, that You would give us attentive hearts and minds to Your Word that we might be sanctified by Your truth. We thank You that in Your Word we see light and we see a revelation of our great God, Make us stand in awe of our Savior and His kindness and His compassion, we pray in His name. Amen. We live in a day that is characterized by almost an unquestioning tolerance of every idolatry, every perversion, every worldview, every sin. In our day, you can't call sin, sin. You can't say that something is right and something is wrong because postmodernism has sort of won the day and you'll quickly be told that you shouldn't judge anybody and even those oftentimes within the church have bought into this very notion that you, you can't condemn any sin, you can't call sin, sin, you, you can't confront somebody in their iniquity or their unrighteousness because that's unloving and it's intolerant. And after all, doesn't the Bible say thou shalt not judge? I mean, ask your rank-and-file garden-variety pagan walking around on the street, and if they know any verse in all of the 66 books of the Bible, it's thou shalt not judge. That, that verse they know. In fact, they would probably think that it's the 11th commandment. They know that well. They're certain the Bible says that. They're not sure that it says anything else, but they know this one thing, that you're not supposed to condemn anyone or any behavior or anything at any time for any reason because the Bible says thou shalt not judge. Did Jesus judge? Oh, no, no, no. Don't you remember the woman caught in adultery? They brought her to him and he said, I don't condemn you either. And he expressed love to her and the law called for her stoning and he let her go free without condemnation. That's the example. Jesus was loving. He was love and he was all love. And he would loved would even loved love and he was very loving. And so you and I ought to model the very same thing and not condemn anybody and just let people go. And that is just one of the many ways in which the text that is before us in John chapter 8 has been abused and misused by people. Was Jesus in John chapter 8 really not condemning the sin of adultery? Was he being soft on violating the seventh commandment? Further, was he overturning Old Testament precedent that such a woman, or man in that case, should be stoned or judged and executed? Was Jesus repealing capital punishment? I've had people who oppose capital punishment, which I don't. I'm, I'm in support of it for capital crimes. I've had people who oppose capital punishment argue from John chapter 8 that Jesus refused to stone the woman or to condemn the woman so that she would be stoned, and in doing so, he was overturning the Old Testament declarations and teaching about capital punishment and therefore we shouldn't be we shouldn't be executing anybody today because Jesus refused to have the woman executed. that's John chapter 8 well that's one of the many abuses tolerance, uh, overturning t- uh, capital punishment one of the many ways that the text is misused and abused today. so we want to jump into John chapter 8 and ask ourselves what does the text say there's a whole context here and there's a lot of stuff to cover so we're going to jump right into it because we want to take all 12 verses. Now, I don't think that we've taken 12 verses since we started the Gospel of John, but we're going to take all of this in one in one sitting, because we are going to jump through this whole, this whole episode, and there's a lot going on, so we'll get right to it. Uh, just three words to kind of hang our thoughts on. This could form an outline for you. We notice in verses 7, verse 53, through 8, verse 6, what we would call the ruse. The ruse, it's a trap. I use the term ruse for this reason. It fits well with the outline, because verse 6 through 8, we would call Jesus' response. It needed something that started with an R. And then verses 9 through 11, the results. So we have the ruse, which is the trap that they set for Jesus. We have Jesus' response to that, and then the results of this whole episode. And I think as we go through and work our way through it, you'll see Jesus is not being soft on adultery. He's not justifying the woman's behavior. Neither is he repealing the Old Testament demands for capital punishment for capital crimes. He's doing neither of those things. You're going to see that what he does and the answer that he gives Reveals the hardness of the Pharisees' heart and reveals their own sinfulness. Jesus used it as an opportunity to do that. And it's very wise and very, very adept how he handles this. It's, it's just masterful to see the Lord come through these traps that the Pharisees set and how he does it. Alright, so John chapter 7 verse 53, we'll read through 8 verse 6. This is the ruse of the trap. Everyone went to his home, but when Jesus, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. We'll stop right there in the middle of the verse. That is the ruse. That's the setup. Now let's assume for a moment, and I'm going to for the sake of today's exposition, let's assume that the passage is legitimate, that the passage belongs right here in its context. So we'll we'll treat it just as part of the context, because last Sunday we dealt with the textual variant. We talked about why there is question about this passage. But all of that aside, let's just assume that it belongs in the text and that it belongs where it is at, that it chronologically fits. This would mean that the day after, or the night of, Jesus' great invitation to them at the Feast of Tabernacles, He went to the Mount of Olives and He spent the night at the Mount of Olives and he stayed there probably with some, if not all, of his disciples. I would venture to say some of his disciples. Some of them would have had relatives. Like I think we know that James and John had relatives that lived in Jerusalem. They probably would have stayed with those. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It was not uncustomary for Jesus to spend the night in the open. We saw he did back in John chapter 6 on the other side of the sea. He spent the night there. It was customary for him to do that. He was, he had no place to lay his head. Foxes had holes. Birds of the air had nests. But the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He didn't have a house in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was filled with people because of the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's very possible that either he was unwelcomed or that there was simply no place for him to stay because the city was packed full of pilgrims who had made the trek back to the city for the feast. So he went out of the city to the Mount of Olives, spent the night there. The very next day, he came back into Jerusalem. And as he had done throughout the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, there would still be crowds there in the temple and around because this is only the day after the feast was over. So there would have been still a multitude in Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple and he sat down and he began to teach. Right, so you got the setting. Now this is right in the middle of all of his teaching. The Pharisees and the scribes, we've been introduced to the Pharisees before, this is the first mention of scribes in John's Gospel, the last mention of scribes in John's Gospel. But the Pharisees and the scribes have colluded together to try and trick him, to trap him. So they found a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery, and they brought her right into the middle of the temple. Imagine, picture the crowds Massive temple courtyard, hundreds if not thousands of people milling around inside this temple courtyard, a number of teachers sitting down with disciples and learners around them. This is what happened in the temple every day of the week. You had people teaching, rabbis teaching, crowds gathered around them. They brought the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They brought her right into the midst of it. So she's standing in front of the crowd. Imagine a crowd this big. And a woman gets drug in right in the middle of the crowd. And right before Jesus, they pose this question to him. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In the very act. The law calls for her execution. And what do you say about this? Now anybody watching this whole drama unfold would have been able to recognize instantly that they were not concerned in ju- about justice. What they were interested in doing was trapping Jesus. And for, In fact, verse 6 says that's what they were doing. They were testing Him so that they might have grounds for accusing Him. You're going to find out in just a second what they were hoping to get out of this. But they were testing Him. This whole thing is a trap. Now, Jesus knew that it was a trap instantly. The Pharisees, of course, who have brought the woman, they know it's a trap. And anybody standing around with a couple of moments of reflection would have said, these guys aren't interested in justice. They are trying to trick him into saying something or doing something so that they might have reason to accuse him before the people or before the rulers. They would have known that it was a trap, and it was. Now, the woman had been caught in the act, which tells us, and by the way, the text says that it was adultery. It uses the term adultery. So that indicates that the woman was probably a married woman. They specify she has been caught in the act. So we know that this is not a rumor. This is not secondhand knowledge. It's not a, a couple of people who have said, look, we have a suspicion about this woman, and so they bring her to Jesus. It's none of that. However it was that they caught her, in whatever place it was that they caught her, her guilt was beyond question. So They have witnesses because witnesses have caught her in this act, in the very act of adultery, so her guilt has been established. Now, I would think, or it seems to me at least from the text, that they have some sort of vindictiveness against this woman. You get the sense, don't you, that this woman is nothing more than a tool to be used by them for this purpose. What would make me say that? They have brought her into the temple, which is an inappropriate place to bring her to begin with. They have brought her into the temple and they have publicly shamed her in front of all of these people. That was unnecessary. The law didn't call for that. In fact, if she had been just caught in the act of adultery, the law would have called for her to be kept privately away until her accusers could present the case and the witnesses could present the case and the whole thing could come before the Sanhedrin. They didn't do any of that. They just went right past all of the all of the arenas of justice and right into the temple and they have drug her out here to shame, to, to trap Jesus. And in the in the process of doing that, they have shamed her publicly. And the law didn't call for any of that. They they don't care one whit about this woman. In fact, it seems as if what they're really interested in is a lynching. And it might make us wonder, who was it that caught her in the act of adultery? And why did they bring her here at this time? Did they just catch her? Did they catch her previously some period of time? Were they waiting for just the pr- perfect opportunity? They brought her in and they've seized this moment. By the way, this is public. They're looking for a public opportunity to to trap Jesus. They, they don't want to do this privately. They want as big of an audience as they possibly can, so that when he messes up, when he says the wrong thing, they can get him and they've got a multitude of witnesses. That's what they're at. Uh, that's what they're after. Now they have accused her and they have cited the law. Notice that they say in verse. Five, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Now, they might have appealed to the seventh commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery, as condemning the act of adultery. They certainly have that in mind, in view. They may have quoted or even been alluding to a couple of other Old Testament passages. I'll read them to you. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 to 24 says, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, and thus she shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. The girl because she did not cry out in the city and the man because he has violated his neighbor's wife and thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Notice that the death sentence is called for. Leviticus 20 verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And the Jews would have argued that that death, the law didn't call for stoning, they could have, done any number of ways of putting her to death, but stoning was the one that they employed during the time of Jesus to execute adulterers and adulteresses. Now, do you notice that the witnesses are not present? Now, they may have been there, but the text doesn't mention that the witnesses were there or that they testified about anything. It's the Pharisees and the scribes who are leading the charge to try and trap Jesus. But there's no mention of the witnesses being there. Do you notice who else is absent from the story? The man is absent. Right? The man. By definition, adultery requires two people. By definition. Now, if they caught the woman in the act, that means they had to have caught the man in the act as well. Where is the man? Some have suggested, and this is just sanctified speculation, some have suggested that maybe the man was one of the Pharisees. One of their own. Is it possible that they would have set this woman up and lured her into this so that they could catch her and then so that they could present this to Jesus and to try and trap him? Is it possible that the whole thing is a setup and that the man who was guilty of this was one of the Pharisees who was involved at the setup? Is that possible? That's possible. Would you put it past a sin-darkened, light-hating heart to do such a thing? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Where is the man? You see, if they're interested in justice, they never would have brought the woman to Jesus to begin with. Jesus is not a ruler. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a member of the Sanhedrin. He's not a civil magistrate. He has no authority in the civil law whatsoever. He is not the type of person who heard cases and people brought issues before him for a verdict. They can't get any kind of a legally binding verdict from Jesus to begin with. They're just interested in his opinion, supposedly. That's what they want. It's an open and shut case, so it's not like they're asking a rabbi for some clarification on some minutia of the law. She's been caught in the very act. Apparently, that involves witnesses. The witnesses, though they are not present, would be able to testify against her concerning her guilt. And what should have happened is she should have been brought before the authorities. She should have been tried. The witnesses brought in. She would be given a chance to present her case. And then when it was all said and done, a verdict would be rendered and she would be executed. That's the way it would have been done or should have been done. But they're not interested in justice. It's evident from the fact that they bring her to Jesus to begin with. He had nothing to say in the matter. It's evidenced by the fact that they brought her out publicly and shamed her. That's not something that they should have done. It's evidenced by the fact that no witnesses are brought forward. And if they were interested in justice, who else would be there being condemned? The man would be there. They're not interested in justice. They're really not interested in fulfilling the law or following the law at all. If they were, this never would have happened. And that's evident to everybody. Where is the man? If they were interested in following the law, they would have brought the man, but they don't. So they're not interested in following justice or seeing that justice is done. Now, what is the dilemma mentioned in verse 6? It says that they were doing this to trap him. They're not interested in justice. What are they interested in doing? What they're interested in doing is setting it up so Jesus can say or do something so that they might have reason, the text says, to accuse him. How would they accuse him? Well, from their vantage point, Jesus really only has, he can only take one of two routes. Right? Now they've they've set him up to take this route. This route, Jesus would say, she shouldn't be stoned. Now I think that's what they're hoping that Jesus will say. Once again, they're asking him for a verdict. They presented no witnesses. They don't have the man there, and they have quoted the law, saying Moses said this. What do and this is the sense of the wording in the Greek. What do you say? And they're putting the onus on him. The emphasis is on him. Moses said this. What do you say in this situation? And what they want Jesus to say is, she should be let go. She should be set free. That's what they're hoping He'll say. Now, if He refuses to condemn the woman, then how do you think they're going to accuse Him? They're going to say, see, this man seeks to overturn the law of Moses. What type of a Messiah wants to overturn and disobey Mosaic law? The law says she should be stoned. He says she should not be stoned. This man disagrees with Moses. So who are you going to believe? This man who claims to be the Messiah or Moses? No Messiah would ever seek to overturn the law of Moses. And Jesus didn't. He actually said, I came to fulfill the law. Every jot, every tittle of it. He came to fulfill the whole thing, not to overturn it. But they are hoping that he will refuse to condemn her. Then they can accuse him as being a lawbreaker. And see, really, they were the ones that were the lawbreakers, right? They're, br- they're breaking everything about the very law that they're seeking to uphold. They violated it all by bringing this woman to Jesus. And now they're hoping that he is going to refuse to condemn her, and they can accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. Or Jesus could take another route. He could go ahead and say, yes, she should be stoned. Now, if Jesus upholds the demands of the Mosaic Law and says she should be stoned, how would they accuse him? They would say, this man is the friend of sinners? What kind of compassion is that? I thought he was supposed to be compassionate. Here's a guy who everybody says is compassionate and loving and gentle and meek and lowly and humble and a teacher of all those things. He's promoted all those qualities and Here he wants to condemn this poor woman for this one indiscretion. What type of compassion is that? Or they might charge him with inconsistency and say, hold on a second. You're willing to forgive publicans, tax collectors, and harlots, but you're not willing to offer forgiveness and salvation to this poor woman who's just committed this one indiscretion. They might charge him with lack of compassion or inconsistency, but moreover, if Jesus called for the death penalty for this woman, you know who they would have accused him to? They would have accused him to the Romans. Because it was illegal for the Jews to put anybody to death under Roman law. And they were in subjection to Roman law. They could not execute anybody. And that didn't keep them from doing it. They were trying to kill Jesus. And they eventually would kill even Stephen. They executed and killed people. They kept it hush-hush. And they quieted. It was a rare thing. But they did do it. But under Roman law, they were not allowed to do it. And they could be punished for doing it. And it was in this very thing in John eighteen when um, the Jews brought Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate said, "Go and go and try him according to your own law." And you remember what the Jews said? It's illegal for us to put anybody to death. That's how they got the Romans to do their dirty work. That's how they got the Romans to kill Jesus because they appealed to that Roman law. We can't execute anyone. Romans allowed the Jews, to try certain crimes and to exact certain punishments, but the death penalty they could not enforce. They could not execute anybody under Roman law. So if Jesus had said, yeah, she should be executed, then they would have accused him to the Romans and said, here's a man who is not submitting to Caesar, who is going outside of Caesar and encouraging us to do something that Rome prohibits us from doing. So supposedly Jesus was trapped no matter which way he went. Now, you got to take your hats off to these folks, right? That's a brilliant dilemma, is it not? I mean, that's really brilliant. That, that is that is stunningly good. Of all of the traps that they tried to get Jesus with, this is one of the best ones. It truly is. And, and I don't know, have you ever been caught in a conversation when you're just caught flat-footed? Somebody presents a dilemma to you and you're just not sure how to answer it or what to do. And then it's always 24 hours later when you come up with it, that's what I should have said. I should have said that. I should have done that, right? Jesus was never at a loss for words like that. He knew exactly what to do. Well, that's the trap. The trap is set. What are you going to do? Are you going to be subversive to Rome? Or are you going to subvert the law of Moses? Those are your two options. Either way, they have him. Now look at his response. Verse 6. They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and asked them, and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, those few verses there are probably the most mysterious, the most curious, the most kind of perplexing verses in all of this narrative, if not all of the Gospel of John. Because it says that Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust. This, by the way, is the only place in all four Gospels where we hear of Jesus or see Jesus writing anything. The only place, which is another thing that makes this passage a bit curious. It's not that Jesus couldn't write, he couldn't read. That's not it at all. It's just that the gospel records never record him writing anything down. But here he stoops down in the dust and begins to write in the dust in the courtyard of the temple. Now here's, this is what your curious mind is asking, right? What was Jesus writing? Why was he writing? And most importantly, what was he writing? Do you want me to tell you? If you do, you're going to be sorely disappointed because I have no idea. (laughs) You can't know because the text doesn't tell us. It's not central to the text at all for us to know what he was writing. Now the fact that it's not mentioned or described in the text what he was writing doesn't keep people for the last 600 years coming up with all kinds of great ideas about what he might be writing. So I want to present five options to you. And I do this, listen, not so that you can take one and run with it. Because here's what we don't do in situations like this. Come up with what we think Jesus might have been writing, cram that into the text, and then build a whole theology on that in the whole context as if it were true. We don't know. Right? So you can't take one of these and say, that's what I think he was writing, so wow, look how this fits. And boy, they must have been thinking that. We, we can't do that with the text. So I present these five things to you, not so that you can take one and run with it, or even say to yourself, that's what I think he was writing, but just as a matter of curiosity, because it's curious to me, what people think that he might have been writing, and some of these are very creative. All right. Number one, it's possible. Some have suggested that Jesus wrote the very text of scripture that answered the question before him, and that's possible, right? Write down, maybe write out the text of scripture that dealt with the seventh commandment, "Thou shalt not commit adultery." Maybe he wrote out the text of Deuteronomy 22:22 22, 22, that called for the stoning, and wrote out the text of Leviticus 20:10, which I wrote, read to you earlier, that called for stoning of such a woman. It might be that he just simply wrote in the dust the text of the Scriptures that answered the question. So rather than him saying anything to fall into their hands, he is answering their question in the dirt, as if to say, this has already been answered. You know what you must do. And here it is. So now you, stop bringing this to me when God has already written what it is that you must do. Follow what you must do, and don't bring the issue to me. That's possible. Number two, it's possible that what Jesus was doing was drawing attention to the Old Testament provision for the jealousy trial, the trial of jealousy mentioned in numbers chapter five do you remember that if a man sub- subje- uh, if a man suspected that his wife was unfaithful to him, if he was jealous for any reason, they would bring her to the priest, they would take dust from the temple or the tabernacle floor, mix it with water, she would drink that, and her uh, she would bloat or swell or whatever it was that would pronounce whether she was guilty or not guilty, and so that would be the just, just judgment, the condemnation. Numbers chapter 5 is where you find that. It might be that by drawing in the dust of the temple, Jesus simply alluding to that trial by jealousy, in the very, it's suggesting by the very dust that that's what they should be doing. If, if this is sub, subject. If this is suspected, why well, do I have trouble with that word today? If this is suspected, then this is the path you need to take. I'm not crazy about that one. Number two, or number three, someone suggested this is a reference to and a fulfillment of Jeremiah 17, verse 13. Now let me listen Listen to Jeremiah 17, verse 13. This is a prophecy. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Now this obviously relies heavily on the previous context where Jesus declared himself to be the fountain of living water. But the prophecy in Jeremiah, that one phrase can be translated, those who forsake you and turn from the fountain of living water, their names will be written in the dust. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing, is just writing out the names of those in that crowd who had already rejected him and stood condemned because they had forsaken the fountain of living water. That might be it. Number four, maybe Jesus listed the names, dates, and sins of the woman's accusers. Now, this is probably the most popular one. Jesus listed the names, dates, and sins of the woman's accusers. So the Pharisees who brought her there, they saw Jesus stoop down and begin to write their name. Right? And i just use my my own, since I don't call it anybody else's name. Uh, Jim, on this date, lusted, which is a violation of the seventh commandment. Harry, nobody here named Harry? Harry did this on such and such a date and this is the commandment he broke. Now some have that's what Jesus is doing. Just basically writing out accusations against all those who stood around and they were watching him write their name and their dates and their specific sins in the dust. I'm not a big fan of that one but it's interesting. The fifth, and by the way if I lean toward any of these five, the fifth is where I think I would have to come down if I had to die for one of these five. And this is it. That by doing this Jesus meant nothing at all. If somebody is talking to you, you just start drawing some piece of paper. Oh, excuse me, were you talking to me? Right? How does that make you feel? It kind of makes you feel like, boy, we are not even worthy to present this to this guy. I might suggest to you that that's what I think Jesus was doing. He is simply ignoring them. He is refusing to play their reindeer games. He is refusing to get in the midst of this issue. He is refusing to play into their trap, to play into their ploy, to follow their little line of reasoning and find himself on the horns of this dilemma at all. He is simply turning and ignoring them. John Calvin says of this passage, Christ intended by doing nothing to show how unworthy they were of being heard, just as if one, while another was speaking to him, were to draw lines on the wall or turn his back or show by any other sign that he was not attending to what was said, end quote. That's exactly what I think Jesus is doing. He just stoops down and starts dawdling in the dust as if these men have no right and no standing at all to even bring this case to him. He is ignoring it entirely. That's what I think is probably going on. That's why I think doesn't mention what he drew, because it's absolutely irrelevant what he was writing. It is irrelevant. It's irrelevant to the issue. Now, furthermore, verse 7, is it, When they persisted, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, See, now he has turned his back. They brought the case. He's turned his back. He sat down. He's drawing in the dirt, not listening to them at all. And they think that his non-answer is an indication that they've got him. Right? He's refusing to answer. He knows we've got him now. He doesn't want to give us an answer, so we're just gonna we're gonna persist. And they did. Come on, O teacher of the law, tell us which one. Moses said this. What do you say? Tell us what you say. You're a rabbi. You're a teacher. Give us your decree. Tell tell us what you think we ought to do in such a situation. Give us your judgment. Give us your verdict. Come on. And he just pester him and pester him and pester him. Finally, he stood up. Verse 7, He straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Probably the most misused and abused verse in all of this context because here's, here's how it's misused and abused. People say, Well, have you ever sinned? Well, yeah, of course I've sinned. Well, then you have no right to judge anybody else. What? Because I'm a sinner, that, that gives me no right to call sin, sin? I admit I'm a sinner? And people take that as what Jesus is saying here. He who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. If you're sinless, then you can judge somebody else. If you're sinless, then you can accuse somebody else. If you're sinless, then you can call their their lifestyle sinful. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, it's not what he's doing at all. You know what he's doing? He is appealing to the very law that they have pretended to want to obey. He's actually appealing to another statute in the law which called for those who were the witnesses to be the first to throw a stone at her. And that's Deuteronomy Chapter 17, verse 7: 7, The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And so they shall purge the land of Israel from uh, the, purge the evil from your midst. Now see, the requirement of the law was that the witnesses, the ones who caught this woman in the act, those witnesses should come forth. They should testify, and then if she is declared to be guilty, they would be the ones who were to pick up stones first and start the stoning. They needed to be willing to execute her themselves. And so what Jesus is doing is he appealing to that. Notice he doesn't say that she doesn't deserve to be stoned. He doesn't overturn the law. He doesn't say we're no longer doing capital punishment under my Messiahship. He doesn't say any of that. He just simply says, if you yourself are a qualified witness, then you pick up stones to throw at her first. If you're going to follow the law, this is what he's saying, if you're going to follow the law, follow it lawfully. All right, bring forth your witnesses. And then my question to the witnesses, those who have witnessed this sin, would be this. Are you yourself innocent of violating the seventh commandment? Have you not sinned in the same way that this woman has sinned? If you are guilty of sinning the way that this woman has sinned, that disqualifies you as a witness. And not only does it disqualify you as a witness, it disqualifies you from picking up stones to condemn and to stone her. You can't execute her if you yourself are guilty of the same crime. That's what Jesus is getting at. If you are without sin in this manner, in in the manner of in the matter of adultery, if you yourself have not violated this commandment as a witness, then you come forward. I suggested earlier, is it possible that the witnesses were the ones who had entrapped this woman to begin with? If that is the case, if the only witnesses to this affair, this event, if the only witnesses were themselves guilty of violating that commandment, then there is nobody there who can start the stoning. That's what Jesus is getting at. Notice again, Jesus did not overturn the statute for capital punishment. He doesn't suggest that the woman is innocent, nor does he declare that the woman is not guilty by the standards of Mosaic law. But he does say that those who were, uh, they were innocent of violating this very same principle, the very same injunction of the law, ought to bring forward the stones to stone this woman. Now, you notice what Jesus has done? This is what he did every time they tried this, every time. You would think that the Pharisees would smarten up after a bit and say, you know what, it never works to try and trap this guy. Never works. He has turned the tables on them. And he has said to them, bring forth your witnesses, go ahead and stone her. Make sure that you do it lawfully and that the witnesses are themselves innocent of this very crime and then you can stone her. And they turn around and they walk off. And you notice what he has he has done in presenting it that way? He has upheld Mosaic law. Right? If you're going to follow the law, do it lawfully. Does she deserve to be stoned? According to Mosaic law, Yes. Are we legitimate stoning here according to Mosaic law? Yes, go ahead and do it. You guys can go ahead and do that. But make sure that you're innocent regarding this transgression. Now they have a choice, right? Now they laid the trap to Jesus. Here was the trap. Do you uphold Mosaic law or do you violate Rome? So now Jesus said, all right, go ahead and uphold Mosaic law. If they're going to uphold Mosaic law, then they've got to do what? Violate Rome's law. So he has turned the tables on them. If they are going to follow the law, They have to execute somebody, and then they themselves would be guilty of violating Rome's law. It just didn't work out for them at all. They set the trap, and they thought they had him, and now they find themselves in the very same dilemma. If we uphold Mosaic law, we're going to be guilty of violating Roman law, and then we are in trouble. He has turned the tables on. That is such wisdom, such masterful command of the situation. So look at the results of that. We looked at the ruse, the trap, and his response. Look at the results. Verse 9 When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Now why did they go out the oldest from to the youngest? You notice it says that they all left. They began to walk away one by one. Starting with the oldest among them, going down to the youngest. Now those who think that Jesus was writing the names, dates, and people... And the sins of the people in the crowd, her accusers, think that having seen this, the older ones who had more sins upon their conscience simply turned around and walked out. There's, there's two reasons why they might have walked away. Number one, it's possible that their conscience was pricked. It was alerted, awakened. And suddenly they realized, yeah, I have violated the seventh commandment, if not indeed, certainly in thought. And I'm guilty of that. And I can, I'm not innocent in this matter, so I can't stone her. And I don't want to go forward with this whole thing. they suddenly realized that, 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 that their own, that they themselves, are guilty of violating this and so they deserve judgment and so now they've just simply said yep i can't be the one to stoner not me because of what happened and they turn around and they walk away beginning at the oldest and going down to the youngest there's a second reason why they might have walked away it might be that they simply realized that they had been bested by jesus again and see the older ones would have figured this out first because they're wiser the older among us are wiser they have more experience, and they can realize when the trap has fallen apart and the whole thing has come to a screeching halt, the tables have been turned, they know they've been bested, it's over. This whole ploy is over. we got nothing. we got nothing. And so they turn around and walk away. But the younger among them are sitting there thinking, how can we salvage this? I think we can still... The younger ones are a bit slower to figure it out, that they've been bested, right? They're suddenly on the losing end of the argument. So beginning with the older, they walked out. Why did they walk out? Maybe their conscience, maybe, maybe they realized the whole thing fell apart. But after a couple of moments, there is nobody left there but the woman and Jesus... And of course, remember the entire crowd that was there to see the whole thing to begin with. The woman and Jesus. And so Jesus asked her the question, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Now he asked this question not because he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer. He asked this question, listen, to impress upon her the realization of what has just happened. She has been shown, while he has, he has upheld Mosaic law, he has avoided uh, undermining Roman law, And he has at the same time shown this woman incredible grace. This woman now realizes there is no one to condemn me. My guilt is beyond question. There were witnesses to this event. I deserve death. I deserve condemnation. I deserve justice. But I have avoided all of that. There is nobody here to condemn me. I have no more accusers. She has just been, had all of her accusers excused and she stands alone with Jesus and he is impressing upon her the realization of what has happened. There is nobody here to condemn her. She is going to get away with the transgression, as it were, scot-free. Escaping the just demands of the law. And so she says, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says in verse 11, I do not condemn you either. From now on, go or go. from now on, sin no more. Now Jesus is not being light with the seventh commandment. He's not excusing adultery. He's not denying her guilt. But he's recognizing that in this situation, there is nobody left that can justly condemn her. So she is going to get away with this. And he has shown her grace. And the the requirements of the law have not come down upon her. But he says to her, go and sin no more. He says, I do not condemn you, not because Jesus never condemned sin. He did, right? He condemned the unrighteous Pharisees all the time and the Sadducees all the time. He condemned sinners. There is condemnation for sinners. And Jesus announced that condemnation to those who remain in unbelief. But when he says, I do not condemn you either, he's not saying, you know what? Adultery is no big deal. That's not what he's saying. He is simply saying, given this presentation, there is nobody here to condemn you. I can't condemn you because he was not a witness to the event. Neither is he a judge or a magistrate. Neither was he in his humanity in any position to adjudicate these issues or to pronounce a verdict of judgment upon her. So he cannot, by the law, by the Mosaic law, he cannot condemn her. It's not that he's being soft on her sin, but lawfully he cannot condemn her or give a verdict on her case. But he gives her this warning, and it's a stern one, go and sin no more. He calls her sin, sin, right? Now what has he told her to do? Turn from your sin. Repent of your sin. Stop sinning from this point forward. Sin no more. Do not think that just because you have escaped the just demands of the Mosaic Law that that is a license for sin. Do not go out and do this again, thinking that, oh, I've escaped once, I can escape again. That's typically how sinners think, right? We do something wrong, we, oh, we got away with it. What does that do? Does it teach us anything? What does our sinful flesh want to do? We're going to do that again, right? And then we get away with it. And the judgment of God is forestalled. The judgment of God waits. And sinners think that they can sin with impunity because the responses or the, the justice of our, uh, upon our sin does not come immediately that encourages more sinful behavior. And Jesus is saying to the woman, you have escaped the law of Moses this time go forward and sin no more do not use this as an excuse to continue in your adulterous ways now you and I have to read ourselves and find ourselves in that story right where are you in that story you know where you're at you're the adulterous woman I'm the adulterous woman have the just demands of God's law fallen upon you and I were were we condemned by the law We certainly were. We were guilty, right? How many of you have violated a commandment of God's law that would have called for your blood? I have, right? Dishonoring my parents, the type of kid that I was. I should have been stoned by the time I was seven. I should have been drug out in the courtyard and had stones hurled at me. Under Old Testament law, I would have been dead before the age of 10 just because of my disobedience. The law called for my execution. All of my sin, my idolatry... Right? Years I spent in idolatry. Years I spent in pride. Years I spent fighting against God. My hatred for Him. My violation of the Sabbath. My lusting is violating the seventh commandment. My hatred is violating the commandment, Thou shalt not murder. I've dishonored my parents. I didn't keep the Sabbath holy. I coveted. I did almost everything under the law that would have required a death sentence, I was worthy of. But have the just requirements of the law of Moses fallen upon your head? Have they? They haven't. They haven't. You know what? You know whose head they fell on? Jesus. Just as with the case of the woman, the just demands of the law did not fall upon her. Neither have they fallen upon us. Instead, the just demands of the law have fallen upon Jesus. He died in the place of sinners. He bore that penalty. My sin is not going to go unpunished. All of my sin was laid upon Christ. And he suffered and paid for all of my sin. Every sin I have ever committed was punished. It was punished at Calvary none of my sin will go unpunished. All of it has been punished. Every sin I have ever committed, every sin I will ever commit, all the way until I breathe my last breath, all of it was punished on Jesus. The just demands of the law were met at Calvary so that God could show love and grace and long-suffering and kindness and compassion and forgiveness to sinners while at the same time making sure that the just demands of the law were met. Because God counted him who knew no sin to be sin for us in our place, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So where are you at in the story? Where am I at in the story? Like the adulterous woman, right? Who were not, though we were guilty under the law, we did not receive the just execution of the law upon us for our sin. Instead, the just execution of the law upon us fell upon Christ. So what do you and I do from this point forward? We go and do what? Sin no more. right? Repentance. That's a penitent heart. From this point forward, I say, how can I sin against so gracious a Savior? How can I sin against so kind a friend? that would bear the penalty of the law in my place. Shall I then continue in sin that grace may abound? Should I continue in my ways, thinking that, okay, I've escaped it. Now I can escape it forever. Should I continue to sin against so gracious a Savior? No, I shouldn't. From this point forward, we go and we sin no more. That means we don't dive into sin. We don't pursue after sin. We fight against sin. We turn from sin. We repent of sin. doesn't mean that we'll never sin. But it means that we do not dive into, plan, and plot our sin. But we have a penitent and repentant heart that turns from sin and seeks to honor him. Because having been forgiven of our trespass of the law, we have been set free to obey him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing kindness to sinners. And thank you that our Lord Christ is a friend to sinners. Gracious and compassionate and kind, wise and all good. And we thank you that you have borne the penalty for our sin on your son. And that he bore our transgressions in his own body on the tree And thank you, Father, that having made him sin, you can count us as righteous. And thank you, furthermore, that you treat us as righteous. And now may we have penitent and grateful and uh, gracious hearts that will turn from sin and hate sin and seek to love and honor and serve you. Thank you for such a kind Savior who has shown us such compassion. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.